We're continuing on in Judges, and we're going to jump. I read the beginning of the Samson narrative a couple minutes ago. Now we're going to jump all the way to the end of the Samson narrative, which is actually his death. And for that, we have to turn to Judges chapter 16 and look at verses 23 through 31, which read as follows. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women, and all the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, and bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol, in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel 20 years. And this is God's word. If you've been uh, coming here throughout the series, you notice that like every week we start with the same concept. Like there's a cycle in Judges that's intentionally repetitive to uh, let you show how God's people have these constantly recurring failures and God's grace is relentless in coming after us instead of just giving up on us. And it's happened yet again. Remember, God's people get complacent. They fall in love with the things of this world, the gods of this world. God allows them to become enslaved to the neighboring peoples of this world. They turn to God, repent, and cry out for mercy. He sends to them a deliverer whom we call a judge who rescues them, usually through some kind of military battle. And once again, it's happened. They've done evil in the eyes of the Lord. They've turned to the gods of this world. And this time, the people group is a group called the Philistines. And the judge that's going to be sent to them is named Samson. But I mentioned this earlier in the first lesson. We're not just introduced to Samson as an adult. Rather, before he's ever born, we're told that there was this man named Manoah who lived in the town of Zorah in the tribe of Dan. And he was married to a barren woman, a woman who couldn't have children. And the angel of the Lord comes to her first and then to both of them and says, okay, you're against all odds. You're going to become pregnant You're going to give birth to a son, and he is going to deliver God's people from their enemies, the Philistines. And yet there's a little catch attached to it. He's going to have to fulfill a Nazarite vow. Now, the vow of the Nazarites is actually listed for us in Numbers chapter 6. It's laid out in the Old Testament. And there's three components to it, really. The first is that you're not allowed to consume any alcohol. The second is that you are not allowed to cut your hair, okay, And then the third is that you're not allowed to go near any dead bodies, any corpses, okay? So for specific reasons. But it's interesting because in this vow, typically for the Israelites, it's voluntary, you know? So you enter into it voluntarily and temporarily. But this vow is unique because it's unilaterally made on Samson's behalf, 
And it's supposed to be for his entire lifetime. I don't know this for sure, but it might be part of the reason Samson's lack of voluntary like complicity in this vow, the fact that he didn't make it for himself, might be some of the cause of some of his acting out throughout his lifetime. I think he kind of bristled against this thing that was made on his behalf. But regardless, Manoah's wife conceives, gives birth to a son. He's raised as a Nazarite. He's named Samson, which in Hebrew means something like sunny. And uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And we didn't actually read it earlier. We read chapter 13, and then we jumped ahead all the way to the end of the narrative. I would encourage you, if you get a chance this week, to read the full Samson narrative, the middle part from 13 to 16. But the middle stuff is all of like the superhuman feats of strength that Samson sort of becomes famous for, right? It's the killing of 30 Philistines. It's the defeating a lion with his bare hands. It's breaking of leather bonds. It's like carrying a city gate all by himself. It's killing a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. There's an incident where he hatches and ties 300 foxes together with torches in between their tails, lets them run free in the Philistine fields to create chaos and burn the fields down and stuff like that. And then, of course, the thing that we just read about was him tearing down a pagan temple at the end of his life. And like all of that stuff, it's, it's extraordinary and seems almost superhuman. I think the problem, however and I certainly made this mistake growing up and hearing the story of Samson, is almost thinking he's like some kind of like athletic meathead, you know, and he's just like this muscle-bound, ogre-ish. And that's not the case at all. When you read the lesson carefully, you realize he's actually into things like mental games and riddles, and he's as intellectually dominant as he is physically dominant The thing with Samson is not that he's like a meathead. The thing with Samson is that he's spiritually lost and socially he's a loner. And by the way, both of those things oftentimes happen with people who are extraordinarily gifted. Why? Because you perceive yourself as relatively self-sufficient and you also aren't very sympathetic to other people because things happen so easily for you. You can accomplish things so easily that you don't see why everybody else can't keep up with you. And the situation with Samson is worsened by the fact that his morality, his morality is horrible. So far as we can tell, in the narrative of Samson, he seems to have sex with anybody that he wants. He's vindictive. He has so little view of sanctity of human life that when he kills somebody, he makes jokes about it. Uh, He increasingly violates his Nazarite vow. He never, ever seems to learn from any of his mistakes, in part because he's so extraordinarily talented that he's able to dig himself out of all the holes that he puts himself in in the first place. We'll get more to that concept in our application section, but the point is, he's Israel's judge. And while he's a judge and while he's gifted specially from God, you'll notice it's all about him. In fact, if you read the specific feats of strength for Samson, He's not really winning battles. He's winning battles. He's successful in a sense. He's not winning battles for Israel. He's winning battles for Samson. You know, like Israel's not really benefiting from some of the things that he's doing along the way. He's not growing spiritually. He's not helping liberate the nation. And tonight's text shows Samson at the end of his narrative, gradually breaking his Nazarite vow. And his pride has led him to not only be like, He's not only delusional psychologically, he's delusional spiritually. He's completely missed the fact that he is utterly dependent on God for his gifting. He seems to think that his gifts mentally and physically are just like his inalienable right. 
that'll never go away irrespective of how unfaithful he is to God. He doesn't understand the concept of grace. He doesn't understand his dependence on God. And he's furthermore, in the same way that the Israelites have this fatal attraction to the gods of the nations around them, Samson also has a fatal attraction to a god. And his god, not unlike a lot of men or potentially women, is beauty and the beauty of the forbidden fruit and beauty of women of the world. And he's willing to sacrifice everything, including his family approval, including his health and wellness, and including his relationship with God at the altar of yet again another beautiful woman. This time in the last one is a Philistine girl named Delilah. And he thought to himself something that I think probably a lot of guys have thought over the years, maybe even some guys in this room. If I can just get this beautiful woman to like me, See, if I can get this gorgeous human being to sleep with me, maybe I'm not as disgusting and as loathsome as my inner dialogue seems to tell me regularly. Delilah obviously is thinking she's going to get something out of it too. She seizes the opportunity to become a hero of her own people. And if you know she can uh, trick Samson, get Samson, sell him to the Philistines, which she does by getting his secrets and cutting his hair and handing him over. She becomes a hero of her people as well. And where we find Samson here tonight is by the time we're catching the beginning of our text, he has been captured, he's been imprisoned, his eyes have been gouged out, and the Philistines are looking forward to making some sort of like public sport of him. So they're during one of their celebrations at the temple of their god, Dagon, they decide to bring him out and entertain them. And most Bible scholars will say the entertainment, how's he entertaining them? He's probably doing some kind of like feats of strength or failing to do certain feats of strength. And there's a break in the action, break in the entertainment, and he asks his attendant to position him amongst the inner pillars, like the load-bearing pillars of the temple. So we know now there's some excavations in this part of the world that from that time, the pillars were probably wooden pillars on stone bases. And we're told that just on the roof alone, there's 3,000 people. Typically what have worked in an ancient temple like this is the aristocrats and the dignitaries, they're on the floor in like the central bowl. But the commoners get to sit on what is essentially like the roof of the temple. And there's over 3,000 just on the roof, which tells you there's probably many thousand more underneath. And so Samson is at this moment of rock bottom, and his eyes are gouged out. He's positioned between load-bearing pillars of a pagan temple. And he says the words that are like the culmination of the Samson narrative. And here's what he said. Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. So for the first time in a really, really long time, Samson's actually exercising some faith. This is the second recorded prayer of Samson in the book of Judges. Uh, interestingly, both of them are phrased, at least, in very self-serving kind of ways. You notice, even what he says here, he seems primarily to be seeking vengeance. You know, please, God, let me get vengeance for my two eyes. Like, it's not, I, I don't know that I would guide anybody in their prayer life, like, this is the healthy way to approach things. But, hey, you know, Faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. Faith as small as a mustard seed uh, can bring down pagan temples. And there's some humility here. There was no humility there before. There's some humility here. He's acknowledging the true God. 
He's calling upon his name. He's actually using the covenantal name of God, Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. That's all of that. That is unquestionably, it's progress for Samson. It doesn't mean he's mature. It means he's made some progress. He's been humbled and he's made some progress. The fact that he says, remember me, what does that suggest? It suggests that he knows he's forgettable. It suggests that he knows God has every right to ignore him. So he's asking God, undeservedly, please remember me. The fact that he says, strengthen me, what does that mean? He knows he's not self-sufficient. He knows he can't do life on his own. He knows he has to have outside intervening gracious help from God. And that's enough. That is enough for Samson's name to be recorded in the Heroes of Faith chapter in the Bible in Hebrews 11. And specifically, it says about Samson, he is one whose weakness was turned eventually into strength. And in his humble death, Samson, we're told, actually killed more people. He was more successful in his death than in his entire life. Hmm, that's interesting too. Let's look at what all this means, okay? By the way, the points that I'm going to share with you tonight, I figured since this is our last week doing these, I want these to be points that actually summarize all of what we've learned in Judges for the series of five weeks. So everyone that we're saying tonight, it applies here, but it applies across all of the different narratives we've looked at. First of all, a growing addiction. I won't go into this too much because we touched on it under Jephthah. We touched on it under Gideon and their insecurities and how that led to some of their pathology too. But we, we didn't read the beginning of Judges 16. But in Judges 16, at the beginning, what we find is the behaviors of Samson that are probably indicative, even though this is what's recorded, it's probably indicative of the stuff that regularly happens throughout his life. And at the beginning of Judges 16, the pattern very clearly here is he gets enticed into dangerous situations because of his weakness for women. So remember, this is Israel's judge. Israel's judge in this scenario is spending a night with a Philistine prostitute in a fortified city where he's walled in and surrounded by his enemies, it's not just disobedient and immoral. It is. It's blindly stupid. And you have to understand that that's an element of sin. It's not just that it's wrong. It's that it's blinding to us in uh, how we think about it. It blinds us to the reality of the world and blinds us to the reality of spiritual life. It shows how delusional Samson has gotten because the pattern is, as time goes on, his behaviors are getting more reckless. He's putting himself into more dangerous scenarios. He's willing to spend the night with a prostitute in the capital of the city of people that want to kill him, but he keeps ratcheting up the volume on the temptations in his life. Why? Because he's addicted, and that's what you have to do. When you're really addicted, you know, like the same substance that got you high on the previous day won't do it moving forward. Every addiction has to continue to ratchet up the substance. He is increasingly reckless, increasingly dangerous, increasingly in denial and in impenitence. And those are the two things that will cause delusion in your life. Denial about the reality and impenitence over your fallen condition. This is any, again, pattern of addiction or, or whatever you want to call it. It will fool you to the point that the substance ratchets it up so much that it kills you. Or if you're at least you're fortunate, it doesn't kill you. You only hit rock bottom. And human beings are just extraordinarily self-destructive in this way. It's one of those 
So one of the most interesting questions of this text to me is, and I remember thinking about this even as a kid when I heard the story of Samson, why does he tell the secret to Delilah? Like, you idiot. Like, of all possible things, like just one, keep one secret, the one thing. Why does he tell the secret? Have you ever thought about that? I've been thinking about this for years, and there's a couple different things I've landed on. Number one, it increases the danger. And remember, this guy's an adrenaline junkie that his whole life, for him to get his fix, it has to become increasingly reckless. And uh, it increases the level of danger by betraying his secret. Number two, uh, I think, is the issue that he's delusional about his ability to control the threats of his life. Uh, There's some people that, like, again, if you're gifted enough and you're experienced enough, you can get through certain situations, even if you don't take very good care of yourself. And you're like, well, I'm a good driver, so if I'm I'm a little drunk, I I can take care of this. You're delusional about your ability to manage your own threats. And that's what Samson is. And finally, and I think this is the most important one, he couldn't bear to disappoint the object of his affection. Remember what his idol is? Female beauty. And he couldn't stand the thought of if she would walk out the door on him, he would rather die. Uh, So he's willing to take that risk. This is true especially of sexual addiction. This is true of relationship addiction. People have a tendency to say things like, "I'll, I'll do whatever you want. I'll do anything. Just don't leave me. My point is this, whether it's sex addiction or whether it's relationship addiction, that's actually the way all sin works. All, I don't know if you realize this, or I don't know if you know this, all sin, it doesn't matter what your sins are, all sin is addictive. All sin is addiction. This is the reason why the Apostle Paul famously in Romans 7, he says, the good things that I want to do, I can't get myself to do, and the bad things that I don't want to do, these are the things that I keep on doing. You know what those are? Those are the words of an addict. Every addict that I've ever talked to sounds exactly like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. I don't think the Apostle Paul had a substance abuse issue, but I do think he was a sinner, saved by grace, and I think he was incredibly self-aware about his sin. And uh, what is Paul's solution in Romans 7? His conclusion is three steps to get out of addiction. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this failure? Thanks be to God who gives me victory in Christ Jesus. You know what that is? You have to acknowledge the wretchedness of your behavior, the wretchedness of your sin. You have to be real about it and not live in denial. Number two, you have to realize who will rescue me. In other words, I need a power in my life that is greater than my willpower. Someone has to love me enough to come in and and liberate me from my delusion and my enslavement. And number three, you have to primarily see that 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 freedom, that power comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, so what I want to say here, because we've mentioned it almost on a weekly basis, and I want to tie this point up by saying, as we get into this season and like we're in the holiday season, not only do things like depression rise during holiday season, things like abuses and addictions rise during the holiday season. And every once in a while, it's important just for me to say, if you are struggling, and unless we are some sort of statistical anomaly as a congregation, there is a fairly high percentage of people in the room right now who are struggling severely with something. We're all struggling with sin. Come and talk to me about it or come and talk to some Christian about it. I have zero judgment for you, but I do want to help you get the help that you need, okay? So let's just talk about it and be honest about it, okay? Let's break that. Uh, Break the powers of addiction. Break the idols that enslave us. Number two, strength and weakness. 
So again, this is at the end of the text, the lowest moment, Samson, who's finally humbled, prays to God. He uses the covenantal name of God. And you remember what his prayer is? This is the most important word Samson ever speaks in his life. It's the most important phrase in the book of Samson. He says, sovereign Lord, remember me. He's asking for grace. Strengthen me, God. He's asking for help. Please do this just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. As he brings down the pagan temple, he's sacrificing his life in the process. Now, what does that mean? He kills more people in his death than in his life. He's more impactful in his death than in his life. The most important event, the most faithful event in his life is his death. When he's weak, then he's strong. When he's repentant, then he's strong. And that's exactly the pattern in our lives as well. First of all, of course, God's not obligated to answer Samson's prayer along the way. But the fact that God very clearly does answer Samson's prayer is evidence of the fact that he has been restored. He's been reconciled to God. So do not miss the inescapable fact here that if Samson can be restored to God, if the Lord hears the prayers of an arrogant, repeat offending, violent womanizer in Samson, I guarantee he hears your prayers. I guarantee he hears my prayers. Another major point that we've been touching on throughout Judges is the fact that Look how flawed Samson is, and look how God is using him. God doesn't just love flawed people. Of course, he loves flawed people. That's grace. He uses flawed people. He uses especially flawed people, people with messed up lives to accomplish his purposes. If you're humble enough to admit your lack of inherent virtue, but cling to the one who is virtuous for you, guaranteed God will use you for his eternal purposes. In other words, let me put this a slightly different way. Uh, you cannot be too weak for God to use you. You cannot be too flawed and broken for God to use you. You cannot have accumulated too many sins or have too big of struggles for God to use you. You can be too hardened. You can be too impenitent. You can be too proud for God to use you, but you can't be too weak for God to use you. In fact, God loves to use your weakness because it just highlights his glory throughout the entire process. So what you see is Samson, Finally, when he's at rock bottom, who cares about the rest of the victories that were entirely self-centered? Don't be impressed by those things. When he's at rock bottom, when he's at his weakest, when he's at his lowest, in that moment, he repents and he's transformed by grace. And that's when God is able to use him mightily. And so I'm actually going to share with you, I want to close this point out with a quote from uh, our own Dr. John Lorenz. And Dr. John Lorenz literally wrote the book on Judges. He wrote the People's Bible book on Judges, and I've been using it to help me throughout the series. And he has a great allusion here to the New Testament that I I think is really worth highlighting. Specifically, what he says is, in this moment, Samson prayed. He was a changed man. He addressed his God by his full revealed name. That's the covenantal name. He asked to be remembered. And our thoughts move ahead over a thousand years to the voice of another malefactor who turned to Jesus and said, God, please remember me. See, this was Samson's moment of repentance. He was casting himself wholly upon the grace of God, the same grace which once he had trifled with. This brings us to the third and final point, the death that saves life. The craziest thing in all of this, when sinners repent, they start to become like Jesus. See, the, I mean, the thief on the cross, the malefactor, when he humbled himself, when he repented, he started to become like Jesus. The problem is we didn't really see all that much of it because that day he was transported to be with God in paradise, right? But in Samson, we catch a greater glimpse of what that transformation looks like. Why? 
Because Samson here, he had just asked God to remember him. God did, and then what happens? The moment he repents, the most important thing in his life, the most faithful thing in his life, the most powerful and effective thing that ever happens in his life is what? It's his death. The most important thing that will ever happen in your life is your death. What does that mean? Remember, years earlier, the angel of God had approached a woman who shouldn't have been pregnant, said she was going to get pregnant, and she was going to bear a child who would deliver all of God's people from their enemies. Again, sound familiar as we enter into the Christmas week? It's supposed to. That's because Jesus Christ is ultimately the ultimate Samson. He's a greater Samson. I mean, he's, he's different in a couple of ways. He's different for, obviously, the fact that, you know, Samson is dying in the temple of Dagon, the Philistine chief god, because of his selfishness, because of his idolatry, because of his inability to live under God's rule. His downfall is occasioned by his own disobedience, not Jesus. Jesus' downfall is, is for what? He wasn't disobedient. He's switching places with us. He loves us enough to take what we deserve and gift to us what he earned. And he dies for our disobedience. Secondly, Samson's death, it achieved the purpose that God had called him to, which was temporary deliverance from the oppressors of the Philistines. But that wasn't enough for what God's people needed. Jesus came, however, to die once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. And therefore, like Samson, think this through carefully. And tell me what this sounds like. Like Samson, Jesus was betrayed by someone very close to him. Like Samson, Jesus was handed over to Gentile oppressors who not only tortured him, but publicly mocked him. Like Samson, Jesus was told and commanded to entertain. Like Samson, Jesus would die with outstretched arms. Like Samson, Jesus appeared to be defeated by his enemies. And yet, like Samson, in his humbled state, i.e. in death, Jesus crushed his enemies, which were the demonic idols who try to control God's beloved people. Jesus crushed Satan's ability to accuse us, and Jesus now crushes any power of addiction or demons or idols in your life to control you too. You can be free from that when you use God's resources. As one commentator put it, in the Samson narrative, what you have is a story that begins with a strong man who was revealed to be weak, but it ends with a weakened man who is stronger than he ever was before. And by the way, that's exactly how you can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of a man who was strong and rich, but became poor and weak so that you and I, through his weakness and poverty, would become eternally strong and eternally rich. Christian friends, this is not only how we become Christians, this is how we grow as Christians. It's by humbling our dying to selves, humbling ourselves before the Lord and allowing God's grace and spirit to flood into our lives. I don't know if this is relevant or not, but I thought it was, this is how I kind of want to finish it out. I met with uh, one of our church bodies, synod leaders this past week, and he was asking me to chair a committee for small groups. Some other, I think, churches have, Wells churches have seen our small groups ministry and thought, wow, there's a lot of great stuff that goes on there. We'd like to have something similar. And so we're going to try to work to uh, help coach other congregations in having good small groups ministry. 
Uh, but he was talking about the adult discipleship within our church body. And he, one of the things that he was talking about was marriage retreats. And he said the thing that was the biggest obstacle in doing marriage retreats actually came on the end of the ministry leaders, like the ones who are supposed to be leaders, the, like pastors and ministry and clergy. And he said there was like this incongruence because there was an inability for ministers to be transparent about their own marriages, about their own struggles, about their own lives with the other participants. And here's the thing, I understand that. As a minister, and I understand the glass house thing, and, and uh, I understand why that's hard. And yet, here's what I wanna, I wanna tell you. I don't ever want you to see my competence or my relative morality or my heightened spiritual efforts, or anything like that. I want you to see my repentance, and I want you to see the glory of my Savior. And the reason that I share that with you is because I want you to want that for yourselves as you witness to the rest of the world. The world does not need to see how strong you are. The world does not need to see how together you have it. The world does not need to see uh, how much you can accomplish. The world does not need to see how self-assured you are. The world needs to see your honest humility, your repentance, the Savior who loves you enough to die for you, the Savior who is powerful enough to raise you. And if the world gets to see that, idols will get defeated and our risen Savior finally then gets to take his bow. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for watching over us throughout the course of our judges' study. There's so much to learn, but let's keep it real simple. We see this pattern, Lord, of humans recurring failures, but your relentless grace. Lord, you're undeservedly good to us, and as we enter into the week of Christmas, we see one more way that you humble yourself to become like us, to be with us, and live and die for us so that we can rise with you to live the life that really is life. Give us so much hope, so much optimism, and so much joy in this knowledge. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.